If you have your Bibles, take them and uh, turn to Psalm 37. Uh, and as you're turning there, um, just a note, there's a, on Friday uh, evening, uh, early in the evening, Bill Campbell passed away and went to be with the Lord. And uh, we will miss Bill. And at this point, there are no arrangements for the service, but they will be forthcoming. And uh, so we thank the Lord for Bill's life, and we rejoice in the fact that he is now with the Lord um, forever. Psalm 37, and uh, I'm going to read to verse oh, 22. Don't let yourself get burned up over wickedness. Don't be envious of wrongdoers, for like grass they will soon wither, and like green growth they will fade away. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Find your delight in Yahweh, and let him give you the request of your heart. Roll your circumstances upon Yahweh, and trust in him, and he will take care of it. And he shall bring forth your righteousness like the light and your cause like noontime. Be silent before Yahweh and wait for him. Don't get burned up over the one who makes his way prosper, over the man who carries out schemes. Let go of wrath and forsake rage. Don't get burned up. It only leads to evil. For evildoers will be cut off. But those waiting for Yahweh, they will possess the land. And yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. And you shall try to detect his place, but he's not there. But the humble will possess the land and find delight in the abundance of peace. The wicked keeps plotting against the righteous and gnashes his teeth over him. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Wicked men draw the sword and they pull back their bow to bring down the afflicted and needy to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked folks. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh keeps supporting the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the wholehearted and their inheritance will be forever. They will never be put to shame in a disastrous time, and in days of famine they will have enough. For the wicked will perish, and the enemies of Yahweh are like glory of the pastures. They are finished off. In smoke they are finished off. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious in giving. For those blessed by him will possess the land, those cursed by him will be cut off. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to make sense of it so that it is an aid to our days and living now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's important that we understand that we ought to live a life framed by God. And what I mean by that is that in our pursuit of God, and in our relationship with the living God, that we form a lens through which we look upon the earth. I think that applies to everything. We live in a crazy, crazy world right now. I listened to a couple podcasts, and these 
podcasts alone reach about 13 million people. And both of those who were speaking on those podcasts were despairing about the nature of the world and the direction that they see it going. They have no reference of God. God does not frame their view of the world in which we live. As we say so often here, God is real and that changes everything. Jeremiah understood the importance of having a knowledge of God and the central place that it ought to have in our lives. There he says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wicked or his wisdom. Let not the mighty one boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. That alone is a helpful frame for our living in this world, to have confidence and the knowledge that God is governing and guiding this world in steadfast love and justice and righteousness. Hosea also affirmed the need for us to pursue a knowledge of God, where he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, Oh, that we might know the Lord. It's almost a longing in his heart when he declares this. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. It's a determination of our wills. Let us press on to know him. And the writer of Proverbs says this a number of times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's the knowledge of God that we ought to pursue. It's the knowledge of God that enables us to realize that he has this world in his hand. It's the knowledge of God that gives us wisdom to understand him and his ways in this world. So the first thing that we need to think of as we think of this psalm, and it's true of the psalmist, is that he lived a life framed by God. This is why knowing God matters. David is wrestling, we talked about this last week, the very real problem that we look around us and the wicked prosper. We envy them and we think, man, I wish I could have what they have. I wish I could do what they do. I wish I could enjoy the things that they enjoy. Or we're full of this, this, um, this fretting because they're in power. And we feel powerless in our own lives. We, we can't control our own situations. We can't control our own destinies, we feel. And so we are full of this this sort of um, fretting about their control over our lives. So David is addressing a very real problem, the power and the prosperity of the wicked, of those who ignore God, of those who don't give a rip about God, of those who live as though there is no God. And their prosperity troubles him. The, the fact that, that they have power over his life bothers him. He's trying to walk with God. He's trying to obey God. He's wanting to serve God. And he's troubled by that. His life is not going always perfectly and smoothly. And he's troubled by those who don't care about God and their lives seem to go wonderfully well. So how does he tackle that? Well, he tackles it by framing his view of the world by his growing understanding of God. Some of you might have read Psalm 73 last week. It was in the study notes, and uh, it's a great psalm that is very similar to this particular psalm. And it starts out again with the writer there saying um, that God is good to Israel, but my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I almost stumbled. I almost fell. 
I almost, we're, we're tempted to walk away with God and to choose the path of wickedness. And then he describes in about 11 or 12 verses the prosperity of the wicked, what he saw and why it made him stumble. They never get sick. They live to old age. They have generations of children. He says, when I thought about this and how to understand it, it seemed like a wearisome task to me. He says, I couldn't figure it out. I, I couldn't make sense of the ways of God. But then he says in verse 17, until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's his way of saying, until I went into the presence of God. Until I went and started thinking about God. Is, until I went and started thinking about God's ways with me and God's ways with his people, about God's word. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It was his picture of God. It was his worship of God that gave him a right perspective or that corrected his wrong perspective on the world. And so Psalm 37 is full of theology proper. And I will encourage you on your own afterwards to go through, if you're one that marks your Bible, to underline every time the word the Lord is used. It's used 15 times in the psalm. This is how steep the psalmist was. This is what brought him back to being able to live amongst the, the, the powerful wicked and amongst the prospering, prospering wicked. It was his view of God. Fifteen times we have a reference to the Lord. Here are just a few. Trust in the Lord, verse 3. Delight in the Lord, verse 4. Hope in the Lord, verse 9. The Lord supports the righteous, in verse 17, the Lord watches over the blameless. In verse 18, a man's steps are established by the Lord. Verse 23, salvation is from the Lord. Verse 39, the Lord helps. Verse 40. Do you see how he's wrestling with this problem? He's not trying to make sense of it himself. He's making sense of it in light of understanding God and knowing God and putting his life in God's hands. Loved ones, until we begin to think about God, until we begin to, to pursue a knowledge of God, we will wrestle with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I have this prayer on my wall in my study. I look at it and read it at least three times a week, sometimes more. I have it in my Bible as well, a shortened version of it. But it says this, things are not as they seem in your life, in your son's life, in your wife's life, in the life of your other children. Things are not as they seem. There's more going on than meets the unaided senses. There is a God, a living God, a good God, a faithful God, a powerful God, a reigning God, an ever-present God. There's never a time when God is not good. There's never a time when God is not faithful. There's never a time when this God is not powerful. There's never a time when the God of the Bible is not on the throne of the universe. Things are not as they seem. Some of you might recall from last week that such thinking of God filled our Lord's mind. Christ filled his heart and his mind with a knowledge of God. 
And it was so evident in him when he prayed that his disciples could see his relationship with God. And they said, oh, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? His knowledge of God poured out in his praying to God. And we said last week, and Pastor Barry mentioned it, that the book of Psalms has always been the prayer book of Israel. But it was the prayer book of Jesus. This is what Jesus prayed. This is the content of Jesus' praying. Martin Luther believed that you could hear the voice of Christ in every psalm. Prayer with us and prayer for us. So in reading the psalms, you get a glimpse of how Jesus prayed, how he prayed for you, how he prays for me even right now. As the Bible tells us, he now lives to intercede for us. And you say, well, what might that look like? Well, I just wrote this down. Father, help Paul trust in you with his whole heart. Lead him to delight in you at all times. Teach him to patiently wait for you. Fill him with confidence that comes from you. Establish his steps. Help him not to fret. Help him not to be anxious as he looks on the prosperous of the wickedness and the power of the wicked. Father, hold his hand as he walks in this world. Help him deliver him. This is how you pray this psalm. This is how you incorporate it into your prayer life as you pray for your situations. Last week, we arranged our thinking around the, pros- or the postures of the wicked. How is it that we stand? What is it that we do that helps us stand against these thoughts that come into our head of anger and fretting over the power of the wickedness and envy over the prosperity of the wicked? And we talked about how, how we are to trust in the Lord and delight in the Lord and roll the stuff of our lives, the burdens of our lives, onto the Lord and to wait for him and to hope for him. These are all examples of what it means to pray, our Father who art in heaven. If you take that phrase, our Father who art in heaven, and, 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 and read the Psalms with that phrase in mind, as you can with every phrase of the Lord's Prayer, you will see it all of a sudden explode with meaning through the passages of Psalms. For instance, I, on my own this week, just looked up this phrase um, in heaven in the book of Psalms. I'll only give you a a few examples of it, but it it shows me that Jesus had this perspective. This is what, when Jesus summarized for his disciples how he prayed, he says, I begin by praying, Father in heaven. And that comes from the Psalms. In Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men. Psalm 14.2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek him. Psalm 20, verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Psalm 53, verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after him. Psalm 57, 3, he will send from heaven and save me. Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Psalm 80, verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. 
Psalm 136, 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This, this all flows from that phrase that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven. He sees, he knows, he hears, he has the power to deliver and to save. Spending time getting to know God is never a waste of time. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, some of you may have heard of the phrase, the, the Shammai of Israel, um, the, the O Lord of Israel. It's a common prayer uh, uh, for the people of Israel. Moses wrote this, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That's the first impression that God makes on the people through Moses. From father and a mother, love God with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your strength. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. Know me, learn about me, find out about me from the word that I have given you. And then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that God should frame your life. God should frame your getting up and your going to bed. God should frame your walking and your eating. God should frame your leisure life. And when you're with your family, talk about God. Point to God. Reveal what you're thinking about God. Let your love for God and your knowledge of God overflow into your family life so that your children and your grandchildren begin to frame their worlds by a knowledge and an understanding of God. Secondly, after we understand that the psalmist is saying, frame your life with a knowledge of God, again, just want to point out this notion of the wicked and the righteous. I made a couple comments about it last week, but I, I just want to make a, a few more. This is the issue that David is addressing. And remember, it's from the perspective of old age. And he's looking out now, he's looking back on his life, and he, he's looking at humanity as, as it's divided into these two categories of the righteous and the wicked. And he's wrestled at length with this tension between the two, with this demarcation between the two, with the, with the hatred of the wicked towards the righteous and the envy, envy sometimes of the righteous toward the wicked. And he's working this out. And what he wants us to understand is that humanity only falls into two categories. The wicked and the righteous. It's very un-Canadian for us to think of anybody as wicked. But the Bible gives us no alternative. It's only framed humanity in two ways, the wicked and the righteous. In this psalm, as you read a little bit, you'll find that the understanding of the, of the righteous is filled out a little bit. The righteous are called the upright or blameless. They're walking after God. They're seeking after God. They're following after God. They are called saints and faithful ones. doesn't mean they're perfect, but they are children of God. They are identified with God, and they are faithful to God, and they walk with God. 
The righteous are characterized by their regard for God. They believe that God exists and they want to walk after him and follow after him. The wicked, on the other hand, are identified variously also in this psalm. In verse 3, they're identified as transgressors, sinners. Transgress means to revolt against or to rebel against. And who do transgressors revolt or rebel against? God. The wicked are further described as evildoers or as wrongdoers, those who carry out evil devices. This is evil in response to the good of God. And we we use these words wicked and evil, and they have a very small category in our thinking when we use those words. He further describes them as enemies of God. They are characterized by their disregard for God by their living as though there is no God, by their lack of concern that there is a God that wants to constrain the way that we live and wants to guide us and give it a path in how we live. The wicked and the righteous, I hope I can help you think, the wicked and the righteous are not two extremes at the end of a behavioral continuum or a moral continuum. So you have at this very, very far end, the wicked, and at this very far end, the righteous. And then a whole lot of in-between. Well, they're not that bad, but they do some bad things. Or they're pretty good, but they still do some bad things. They're, they're actually pretty good, but I wouldn't call them righteous. And yeah, they're, they're maybe bad, but I certainly would never call them evil or wicked. There's no continuum like that in the Bible. There is a dividing line. And you are either on this side of the line or on that side of the line. And the dividing line is a knowledge of and a relationship with God. And it's a lifestyle that's marked by an awareness and a desire to follow after God or a disregard of God and a desire to have him out of your life. As the slaves say in one of the parables, we will not have this man rule over us. So the wicked are are simply those who refuse to acknowledge God, who live as though there is no God, who are practical atheists. And the righteous are those who live as though there is a God and who have God direct and constrain their life. They're tough categories to think in, both of them, actually. Because if you are following after God, it's hard to hear yourself called a righteous one, is it not? And if you're not following after God, it's hard to hear yourself called a wicked one. But so we think that God has not discarded us if we don't have a relationship with him. He says through Ezekiel, say to the people, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil ways and live. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? In another place, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and rather that he should turn from his way and live? 
That's the desire of God for all those who ignore God and reject him. Turn from your ways and live. It's jarring, isn't it? It's jarring to think of somebody who doesn't know the Lord as wicked. And part of that is because we've misunderstood the category wicked. And we fill it with the most evil, wretched people that we can. And we say, that's a wicked person. That's not me. The Bible doesn't make those distinctions. It simply says there are those that walk with God and those that walk as though there is no God. Psalm 1 that Pastor Barry introduced to us a couple weeks ago. The righteous are those who are known by God and who have eternal life guaranteed by God and the wicked are like chaff. They're blown away. Embracing the perspective in living then, and this is where we come back specifically to the psalm to help us. So what is the perspective in living that the righteous are to embrace? How is it that, 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 that we live in this world of two groups of humanity and there's tensions between those two groups? But how, how is it that God frames our perspective? Have you, have you thought this through? Have you read this song? Is there something that's, that's sort of jumped off the page and you say, I get it. Let me help. There's three things I want to say quickly. The first is, there's a perspective taught in the words of the text here that is so critical for us to embrace. Notice, as I read, and I hope as you will read it on your own, the shells and the wills that are in this psalm. The wicked shall be cut off. The righteous will inherit the earth. These remind us that things are not as they seem. Things are not only as they seem. They remind us that the present doesn't give us the only complete view of reality. There is a future. History is linear. And so when he talks about the wills and the shalls, what he's doing is he's, he's saying, I made sense of life by looking down road and having the long view of life and realizing that the present is not all that there is. It's so difficult for us because we live by sight. We live by feelings. We live by experience. We don't naturally gravitate to thinking in future terms. Such words like will and shall should inform our praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. There's an anticipation that in, in our future days, in, in tomorrow, in the next day, in the next month, that God's kingdom is going to expand. God's will is going to expand. I was thinking of Psalm 22 as I was working through this, the wills and the shalls. And Psalm 22 was a psalm that Jesus had on his lips when he died. My Father, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These were some of the last words that Jesus spoke as he was dying. And what it tells us is that Jesus was meditating on Psalm 22. He was thinking Psalm 22. He was praying Psalm 22, even as he was dying. And do you know the very next words 
that follow in the psalmist in Psalm 22, after my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In your father, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Do you understand what's going on in Jesus' head? Even as he is dying, even as he is bearing the sins of the world, even as he is bearing the, the wrath of God, even as he is experiencing being forsaken by God, he had a long view. Yet you are holy. He's saying, but God, I trust myself to you. I believe your word. And your word said that if I obey you and fulfill your word perfectly, I will not die. And even as he was being forsaken by God, he knew that he had walked with God perfectly and he knew the promise of God that he would raise him from the dead. And so even as you and I go through brutal circumstances, I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what this week will be like. But as you go through those tough times and as you face them, and in your heart you might be saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Don't end there. But say, but you are holy. And as fathers of old trusted you and you delivered them, I will trust you. This is the long view of life. This is the future view of life. Secondly, this perspective is illustrated in the text. There's a word that David uses five times in this psalm in verse 9, verse 22, verse 28, verse 34, and verse 38. It's the word cut off or perish. Evildoers will be cut off or they will perish. In verse 10 he says, In a little while the wicked will be no more. This is, a, this is a tempering of our fretting. It's a tempering of our envy. It's a reminder to us that there is more to life than meets the eye, that today is not all that there is, that there is a tomorrow, there is a future, that God is righteous and he will act. And from a perspective of, of an older man, I don't know how David was when he, how old he was, but he says, I have been young and now I am old. And one of the things, and I, I wish... It's so hard for young people to grasp this perspective, but I urge you to listen to your parents. I urge you to listen to your grandparents. I urge you to listen to those who have walked with God to understand that the long view perspective is the best perspective and the biblical perspective to take in life. That there is a lot of temptations. There is a lot of things that are appealing in the present. But the wicked will be cut off. Those who ignore God will be cast out of his presence. That's what the Bible says. But the righteous will inherit the earth. The Lord laughs at the wicked. It says in verse 12 to 13, the, the wicked keeps plotting against the righteous and gnashing his teeth over them. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. See, David is not, he's not laughing at the destruction of the wicked. And he's, he's not saying that this is a, a big joke for God. But what he's saying is God is control. And what he's saying is that there will be a day of judgment. And what he is saying is that sometimes the wicked live as though there is no judgment and there is no God. But God knows better. 
because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the earth. He sees the day of judgment coming. It's this long view. Verse 14 and 15, wicked men draw the sword and they pull back their bow to bring down the afflicted and the needy to slaughter those whose way is upright. I hope you hear in there again, Genesis 3.15. We spent a long time there and, and sort of exploding that verse for us, the first promise of the gospel. But in that verse, it says, God will put enmity, hostility, tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There is this God-given hostility between the two. And it's, it's, it's there so that we don't cozy up to one another. It's there so that we are jarred every once in a while, this reminder that there are two different paths. And so he's, he's saying here that the, the wicked gnash their teeth at the righteous. The wicked try and bring down the righteous. But they will suffer from self-inflicted wounds. God will turn their evil intentions back on themselves. And then in verse 16 and 17, Better is a little the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked folks. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh keeps supporting the righteous. I think this is way, his way of saying, I've learned to be content. I think this is David's way of saying, there is no rest for the wicked. It, it's, and if we're really honest with ourselves, and, and if we look out, if you are righteous and you're obedient, and you go to bed at night after a long, hard day, you fall asleep and you're not anxious, you don't have guilt, your conscience isn't plaguing you, and you fall asleep. Where the wicked have lived a life of rejection of God, and they've lived a day, and maybe they've, maybe they've, they've had a prosperous day, but when they actually fall asleep at night, they realize the root of that prosperity. Or they amass incredible wealth, and we've seen that, incredible wealth and incredible power and incredible prestige, but they never enjoy it. They're too busy. They're too caught up in the worries of the next day. They're too worried about some who's going to come and take that all from them. In other words, the arms of the wicked will be broken. So they never enjoy the long-term benefits of what they've accumulated. Verse 20, for the wicked will perish and the enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of pastures. They are finished off in smoke. They vanish or they are finished. They vanish. There is no more. There's no memory of them five days later, five years later. Gone. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious in giving. That's a fascinating contrast. It, I don't know why David put that one in there. Other than that says something about the heart. The wicked accumulate. For the wicked, it's all about themselves. It's self-interest. For the righteous, it's, this is not mine anyhow. I'm just a steward, and it's God's. And this world is just a small blip in the light of eternity. I'm going to be generous. I don't care if I get paid back. I don't care if I ever see it again. God will give me more. But he says, the, those who are blessed by the Lord will possess the land, but those who are cursed by the Lord will be cut off. 
again, what he's saying is that the wicked embrace a short-term view of life. This world is all there is. That is such a terrifying view of life. This world is not all there is. And the righteous understand that. Or at least the righteous are to cultivate that. Thirdly, the perspective is shaped by praying the text. I guess what I'll simply say here is I referred to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I think, how do you pray that? What does that mean when you pray, hallowed be thy name? I think what that means is every time you get into a situation where you're torn, say, but I will trust you, Father. That is hallowing his name. Every time you're distraught and, and, and you, you don't know where to put your heart, but you delight in the Lord, that is hallowing his name. Every time you choose the long view over the short view, you are hallowing his name. You are taking his perspective. You are wanting his glory. You are wanting God to be manifest, manifest in your trusting, manifest in your view of life, manifest in your complete obedience and, and knowledge that God will set things right. And so you pray these things. One's view of the future does largely shape your present. You know that, right? If you think this world is all there is, it will shape how you live. If you understand that this world is not all that there is, that will shape the way that you live. Our view of the future largely determines our understanding of the present. That is why David very quickly after he says, do not fret when the wicked prosper. Do not envy the prosperity of the wicked. He adds then, for they will vanish like grass. Loved ones, embrace the long view of life. Work this through. Where is evidence in the world and in Scripture and in your own heart that tells you this world is not all that there is? Let the last things of God temper the present realities that you're experiencing. Work hard at that. This isn't makeup stuff. You work it out on your own. There is evidence of the eternal nature of us, the eternal nature of God in a lot of places. So it's not just me throwing this. Work this out for yourself. Embrace God's heart for the wicked. In other words, don't pat yourself on the back that God has drawn you to himself. Don't look with disdain on the wicked. The, the worst thing is to go from I won't fret and I won't envy to I can't stand or I'm going to keep my distance from. Embrace the heart of God. He has no desire that the wicked should die, but that they would turn and live. Is that your prayer for your children, for your grandchildren, for your spouse, for your neighbor, for those who live as though there is no God? Oh, Father, turn them from their wicked ways into a relationship with you.
Father in heaven, we come before you today. I thank you for the help that this psalm is to us. David just doesn't point out a problem. He gives us solution after solution after solution to live rightly. I thank you for many, many in this room who would fall in the category of the righteous. You have opened their eyes. They've looked at the world in which they live. They've read some of your word. They've encountered Christ and they've put their trust in him and have received everlasting life. Father, would you continue to protect them and preserve them? Would you give them an ongoing understanding of the future realities of not only this world, but of the new world to come? And Father, for those who might be in this room who don't know you, it may be shocking to hear how the Bible describes those people, but it's not necessarily wicked in the sense that they're as evil as they could be. It's just in the sense that they've ignored you, lived as though you haven't existed, pushed you away from them. Father, would you be gracious to them? Would they not fear turning to you? Would they see that your grace is so wonderful that you long to pour out on them things that they thought they would never deserve. That your mercy is so wonderful, Father, that you do not give us what we deserve, but you shower us with forgiveness and love and hope. And that you are a God who gives peace. That that grace and mercy is not just a temporal fleeting thing, but that it is something that works itself out in peace in their life. That they realize there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That they need not fear any longer. Oh, Father, would you draw, would you draw those who have never heard of you or who have ignored you or have rejected you for months or years, would you draw them to yourself? Might they see that you are reasonable might they see that you are gracious? Might they see that you are righteous? Might they turn their feet from walking in wickedness to walking in righteousness? Show them Christ, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.